Professor, what's wrong with that book on your desk? The picture of the man on the cover is upside down. It's printed that way intentionally. The man's critics say he was right before and he's recently begun standing on his head. But he says his worldview was upside down before and he's corrected it. Well, either way, the man has made a 180-degree change in his opinion. Electronic media deluge us with information and misinformation in forms of bits and bytes. On today's Truth in the Test Tube, let's take atoms of information and combine them into molecules of meaning. Besides the upside-down picture, the cover has another unusual feature. Some of its printing scratched out, and a pen adds a handwritten correction. The words, there is no God, are changed to, there is a God. It's subtitled, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. I see that its author is British philosopher Professor Anthony Flew. In 2005, he re-evaluated the evidence for and against atheism and became convinced that God exists. He died in April of 2010 at age 87. Professor Flew had a co-author, so a book review in the New York Times claimed that the co-author put words into Flew's mouth, misquoting him to make it sound as if he were more firmly convinced of God's existence than he really is. Who was the reviewer? Mark Oppenheimer, a journalist who claims he had interviewed Flew previously when Flew was an atheist. He had difficulty believing Flew would have changed his mind and said the things in his book. Oppenheimer writes, With his powers in decline, Anthony Flew, a man who devoted his life to rational argument, has become a mere symbol, a trophy in a battle fought by people whose agenda he does not fully understand. Is that statement accurate? Well, not according to an article in Publishers Weekly. It says Flew's co-author did not distort Professor Flew's interpretations and opinions. The article begins, In the piece, Oppenheimer characterises Flew as a senile old man being manipulated and exploited by evangelical Christians for their own ends. Flew's publisher said, It's one thing to review, question and debate the arguments of the book, but Oppenheimer didn't do that. He went after the integrity of our author and our integrity. It seems like he just saw this as an opportunity to make a name for himself, and it was out of line. So, the reviewer was insulting the co-author and calling him dishonest in order to get publicity for the reviewer. Yes, Oppenheimer apparently was upset that one of the most famous defenders of atheistic philosophy was now saying that he'd matured out of his atheism and the reviewer sounded desperate to defend the atheism that Dr. Flew had discarded. Were there some facts that could give the impression that the thoughts in the book were not from Dr. Flew, but from his co-author? Well, not if you see the facts in context. Flew has a condition called nominal aphasia, a condition that affects his ability to remember names, but does not affect his overall memory. I've met people like that. Their reasoning power and most of their memory are as good as ever. The only part that has deteriorated is the ability to remember names. But Oppenheimer misinterpreted this nominal aphasia to be senility. And he used this misinterpretation to imply that Flew didn't write the book. 
The book cover does say Anthony flew with Roy Abraham Varghese. Doesn't that kind of double byline usually indicate that a famous person and a less famous person work together with the less famous person doing most of the actual writing? Yes, and some co-authors either misunderstand or deliberately distort what the other person really says. But Professor Flew said his co-author had faithfully presented his thoughts. And he affirmed, my name is on the book and it represents exactly my opinions. I would not have a book issued in my name that I do not 100% agree with. I needed someone to do the actual writing because I'm 84. And that was Roy Varghese's role. The idea that someone manipulated me because I'm old is exactly wrong. I may be old, but it's hard to manipulate me. This is my book and it represents my thinking. Professor Flew didn't physically key the words into the computer. But they are his thoughts. Co-author Varghese had conducted numerous interviews and correspondence with him, and he supplemented it with material that Flew had previously written. Well, now that we've established that the book accurately expresses Professor Flew's thinking, what does he say in the book? Well, he presents so many interesting ideas, it's going to take several programmes to discuss them. But today, let's discuss the chapter entitled A Pilgrimage of Reason. He begins with an illustration. Imagine that a satellite phone is awash the shore on a remote island inhabited by a tribe that has never had contact with modern civilization. The natives play with the numbers on the dial pad and they hear voices. They assume first that it's the device that makes these noises. Some of the cleverer natives, the scientists of the tribe, assemble an exact replica and hit the numbers again. They hear the voices again. The conclusion seems obvious to them. This particular combination of crystals and metals and chemicals produces what seems like human voices. And this means that the voices are simply properties of the device. The natives think the satellite phone originates the sounds instead of just receiving them from another source. Professor Flew continues, but the tribal sage summons the scientists for a discussion. He's thought long and hard and reached the following conclusion. The voices coming through the instrument must be coming from people like themselves, people who are living and conscious, although speaking in another language. Instead of assuming that the voices are simply properties of the handset, they should investigate the possibility that through some mysterious communication network, they are in touch with other humans. Perhaps further study along these lines could lead to a greater understanding of the world beyond their island. That's an interesting point. But the scientists simply laugh at the sage and say, look, when we damage the instrument, the voices stop coming. So they're obviously nothing more than sounds produced by a unique combination of lithium and printed circuit boards and light-emitting diodes. What does Professor Flew illustrate by this story? He explains, in this parable, we see how easy it is to let the preconceived theories shape the way we view evidence, instead of letting the evidence shape our theories. And in this, it seems to me, lies the peculiar danger of dogmatic atheism. Take such utterances as, we should not ask for an explanation of how it is that the world exists, it's here, and that's all. Or, since we cannot accept a transcendent source of life, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance from matter. 
or the laws of physics are lawless laws that arise from the void. End of discussion. Those are arguments that atheists often give. As a former atheist himself, how does Professor Flew answer them? He says, now to make a rational argument that such and such is the case is necessarily to provide reasons to support one's case. For if the utterance is indeed rational and an argument, it must indeed provide reasons in its favour from science or philosophy. And anything that would count against the utterance, or which would induce the speaker to withdraw it, or to admit that it had been mistaken, must be laid out. But if there is no reason and no evidence offered in its support, then there is no reason or evidence that it is a rational argument. So, a person must evaluate all the evidence, the facts that support this idea and the facts that contradict it. Yes. In the parable, the sage was suggesting that failing to investigate all sides of an issue kept the tribe from understanding the outside world and its technology. Professor Flew interprets, Now it often seems to people who are not atheists as if there is no conceivable piece of evidence that could be admitted by apparently scientific-minded dogmatic atheists to be a sufficient reason for conceding there might be a God after all. I therefore put it to my former fellow atheists, the simple central question, what would have to occur, or to have occurred, to constitute for you a reason to at least consider the existence of a superior mind? What facts would an atheist need to see before he would at least think about the possibility that someone smarter than humans might exist? Flew says his change from atheism to believing that God exists was a migration that took two decades of careful thought. And in our next several episodes, we're trying to figure out which Professor Anthony Flew is really standing on his head and which Professor Flew is standing upright. You've been listening to Truth in the Test Tube, exploring what we discover in nature and what God has revealed in the Bible. You may email us at truthtest at truthinthetesttube.org. That's truthtest at truthinthetesttube.org. If you live in India, our email address is testtube at radio882.com. That's testtube at radio882.com. Our phone number in India is 919845616412. Again, that's 919845616412. Either way, we'll be happy to hear from you. Please join us again for Truth in the Test Tube.